This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is from Proverbs chapter 22, verses 1 to 16. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favour is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. The clever see danger and hide, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honour and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. The cautious will keep far from them. Train children in the right way, and when old, they will not stray. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whoever sows injustice will reap, reap calamity, and the rod of anger will fail. Those who are generous are blessed, for they share their bread with the poor. Drive out a scoffer, and the strife goes out. Quarrelling and abuse will cease. Those who love a pure heart and are gracious in speech will have the king as a friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the faithless. The lazy person says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. The mouth of a loose woman is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry falls into it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a boy, but the rod of discipline drives it far away. Oppressing the poor in order to enrich oneself and giving to the rich will only lead to loss. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It is not, li- is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the, of the field, what is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will I eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you will need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Hear the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures, their precepts, their promises, their directions and light. In them may we learn of Christ, grasp his truth and have grace to follow in his steps. Amen. Well, in the, if the last 18 months has taught us anything, it's that the only certainty in human life is uncertainty. Now, the prophets and priests of business and technology used to proclaim the constancy of change as a beautiful and wonderful thing, the opening of new horizons of possibility. But now, I don't know about you, but I think we'd like a holiday from change. I'm over it. We now live with a background hum of anxiety pervading our day-to-day lives. Words like pivot and the new normal and agility have become tired cliches and I'm sick of hearing. Anxiety has become its own pandemic to parallel COVID-19. And we've seen this in the bizarre reactions, the immediate impulse that we all have to run down to the store and to hoard toilet paper of all things. Probably because we can't think of anything else to hoard. There's a lot to worry about, if we're to be honest. And so to what might we turn as an antidote for this anxiety? Well, at least there's money and the things that it gets us. Money promises to comfort us, to secure us, and to soothe us. If only we can get enough of it. Because this is the sad irony about money. It offers us freedom while enslaving us. It offers us a life free of worry by making us worry about it. It offers us something solid, but then it disappears in an instant. So what are we to do? What alternative is there? What other strategy have we got? It's all very well to say, watch out for greed, but what will might be my anchor against the storms of constant uncertainty? And I do have to live, don't I, in the world shaped by money. How can I not, in some sense, put my trust in it? Well, today, as we'll see, Jesus has a completely different strategy for us, a different way for us to live in the midst of uncertainty. And he'll show us how there is an alternative that is both more safe and more sumptuous than what money brings to the table. It's the life we actually long for, the simple and carefree life that we long, we desire, we deeply desire. What Jesus presents us is simply a better deal than that which is offered by money. So how do we access it? Well, there are three ways. We hoard for heaven, we serve one master, 
and we stop worrying. We hoard for heaven, we serve one master, and we stop worrying. So first of all, we hoard for heaven. That's what Jesus is telling us in verses 19 through to 23 of our passage from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6. He tells us there, stop accumulating the things on earth and start instead making a stockpile for heaven. Gather things, not toilet paper, gather things, hoard things for heaven. This sounds a lot like what he said we heard last week from Luke chapter 12 about being rich towards God. The thing is, storing up your wealth on the earth is a risky and ultimately futile exercise. Do what you like, but you cannot protect your wealth from forces beyond your control. Now, we're probably better at pest and rust protection than they were in the ancient world. But you cannot guarantee your wealth against the unscrupulous dealer or against the vagaries of the global economy, decisions that are made in Washington or Beijing or London. Let's be honest. We in Sydney, and especially in the East, we have this deep faith that property is going to secure secure us to the point of obsession. We believe with a blind religious faith that property prices will not go backwards. But his history taught us nothing. The 2008 global financial crisis came because we had faith in infinite growth. The 1987 stock market crash wiped away fortunes in an instant. The inflation of the 1970s meant that, as one writer has said, if you were rich in 1970 and did not remake your fortune by 1990, you were no longer rich. Moth and rust can take many forms. Revolution, pandemic, legal proceedings, scammers, Ponzi schemes, divorce, neighbours, the local government, the local council, inflation, termites, gambling, environmental catastrophe. And as we learned last week from Jesus' story about the man who built bigger barns, even death. Jesus warns us against the insecurity of these things we think are solid. But he also has a psychological principle that he wants us to learn, a spiritual principle, if you like, in verse 21. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is, he's telling us something about the way, about ourselves, about the way we operate. There's a close link for us between the noun treasure and the verb to treasure. What you invest in tends to captivate you. You will treasure what you treasure. You will cherish what you cherish. You will treasure your treasure. What you start to collect will start occupying your dreams, whether that's property or cars or shoes or holidays or experiences or restaurant uh, nights out or, or just cash. It can be small or large. The size of your treasure is irrelevant. What matters is the way our heart gives itself. We find ourselves giving our hearts to these things we treasure. So what does Jesus say? Stop treasuring things? No, he says. Hoard in a different way. See your possessions as things to be transferred, exchanged, not into Bitcoin, but into heavenly capital. 
Store up for yourselves, says Jesus, treasures in heaven, for the moth and the rust cannot ever get at your treasure there. Your stockpile there is utterly secure. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it, earthly goods are given to be used, not to be collected. If you collect them, they will disappear. They get eroded. So what does it look like to store up treasures in heaven? Jesus would say, it's to seek God's righteousness. It's to do the things in this world that God wants done. To think in a heavenly way about the earth. To pray with Jesus that God's kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We follow Jesus loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, forgiving one another, being full of generosity and kindness, longing for others to know him too. Someone once said, we're to use our possessions, if we think this way, and to love people, not to use people and to love our possessions. The words of the prophet Micah, from chapter 6, verse 8 of that prophet, give it to us straight. What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Doing this, having this attitude, this heart, will give you treasure in heaven and there your heart will also be. Make the focus of your life collecting a storehouse of such treasures, and there your heart will follow. Another way of putting it is, what's your eye focused upon? What does your desiring eye linger over? What does your mind's eye look at? Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your gaze is captivated by God then you will be spiritually healthy and full of his light. But if your fixation is the treasures of this world, the the passing things that we collect, then you will be dark on the inside. So we're to hoard for heaven. And we're to serve only one master. That's what Jesus has got to say here for us in verse 24 of chapter 6. We cannot belong to both God and wealth. Our hearts cannot be divided like this. Now, we busy modern people do like to think of ourselves as having great capacity. We're the sort of people who want to have it all. We want to have the family life. We want to have the career that's satisfying. We want to have recreation that's exciting. And so we persuade ourselves that 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 works for God as well, that we can do double time or triple time even, serving the demands of wealth and of God's demands too. It's not that wealth is bad in and of itself after all. Can't I have it all? But we can only dream of this if we minimise what God is asking us. Only if we reduce his right to actually be God and not merely a hobby or a side interest alongside golf or bridge or doing the cryptic crossword. It's not just that the commandments tell us to love God wholeheartedly and as our first love and to have no other gods beside him. 
There is a command here, I think, in what Jesus is saying. Have only one God, not two. You can't have two. But he's also just telling us how it is. You, you can't do both. There's a spiritual reality here. You can't split your allegiance. If you serve wealth, if wealth is in your heart, you will resent the imposition of God on your time. You'll resent him. You'll be a practical atheist, hating God, in fact, while declaring that you love him. And if you give your heart to God, you will find yourself less and less in the sway of wealth. If you serve God as your master and have him first, then that is an effective antidote to the pull of wealth. Wealth loses its luster if we have God as number one. The secret to loosening the grip of greed in your heart is, to, is a deeper devotion to the true God. As the old hymn goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Look to him. Let him be the focus of your gaze. And, and I love this line, the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. They just lose their significance in the light and the glory of, and grace that we receive in Jesus. So hoard for heaven. Serve one master and stop worrying. Well, we might ask, what am I to do with all the stresses and anxieties of living in the chaotic world? It is a worrisome world. There is a lot to worry about. But one of the traps of our earthly possessions is that they promise us security and freedom from this anxiety, and yet they themselves are a source of further anxiety. We worry that we don't have enough, and then when we have enough, we worry that we will lose it. And so we spin into this cycle of anxiety. We act from fear rather than from hope. We act defensively and protectively rather than generously and openly. We assume always that we are living in a, in an, in a culture of scarcity rather than of plenty. We assume that there will be a not enough tomorrow even when there is enough today. And so we are frantic in our grab for survival. But Jesus says... Do not worry about your life, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. Now, wait a minute, we might say, isn't this just cruel counsel to the anxious? Laying another burden on top of the burden we already feel? Is that not inviting, alternatively, irresponsibility? A failure to plan, which in the end may make us dependent on those who have planned. Aren't the, you know, at least the people who worry, they will have something tomorrow and the people who haven't worried will be dependent on it, coming around asking them for food and clothes. Is Jesus of the don't worry, be happy school of philosophers counselling an easy come, easy go mentality? Or worse, is he imposing here a kind of law about your mental health? I had a student once who told me that after reading a certain Christian book, which he had said here that Jesus is commanding us not to worry and that it would be disobedient and even a sin not to obey him here, 
that she, as a person who suffers from an anxiety disorder, had felt even more anxious now that her anxiety had been called a sin. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus has here for us is, in fact, good news. This is the gospel. And what is it? We're not to worry because God is good and he cares for us, our beloved, his beloved children. He is your heavenly father who loves to give you good things and who knows what you need, who knows the worries of our souls. Just look, says Jesus, at the way he's ordered the world with such grace, with such generosity, with such wit. The birds are fed, though they do not labor for it. The lilies are dressed in fine clothes, yet they are not conscious of fashion at all. They've never picked up a Vogue magazine or appeared at Sydney Fashion Week. The creation around us is lavishly dressed and wonderfully supplied. We see signs of generosity, God's generosity, everywhere we walk. Just open your eyes to see it all around you. In fact, as we go through this period of lockdown, and we're doing perhaps more walking than we did before when we're not locked down, use this as a time to go around and notice God's kindness to his creation. Look at what is around us. And yet, are we not more valuable? Are we not more valuable to him than the birds and the lilies? In the midst of our anxiety about today and even about tomorrow, we can know that our Father in heaven knows what we need. He is a generous Father who loves to give his children good things. And especially, we know that he knows we need forgiveness. He knows that we need someone to atone for our sins and to be reconciled with him, to be at peace with him. And that he wonderfully pours out his grace to us in Jesus Christ. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. And these mercies we see point us to the mercy we have in Jesus Christ. And this gives us a marvellous release from the worries of this world. We need not be anxious. We cannot, in our worrying, it turns out, control the world, though we hope to. Which one of you, says Jesus, can, by worrying at a single hour to the span of your life, in fact, all the doctors will tell us that worrying will shorten our lives. Our num the number of our days lies in God's hand. It's not that we shouldn't work or take responsibility for our food and clothes. We should think ahead and not be a burden to others. But there's a difference between that wisdom and the worrying that wants to exert control over the future, a control that in the end only God has. The disciple of Jesus Christ works and provides, but accepts everything he or she has as coming from the generous hand of God. What we have, even when we work, is from him. So we trust ourselves to him. And there's something untroubled and uncomplicated about the life that Jesus shows us here. Don't you think it's appealing? 
Wouldn't you like to reach this state of carefree simplicity? That's the word Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to describe this attitude to life, a carefree simplicity. I love that phrase. It's the sort of thing I think that people are wanting when they seek a, a tree change or a sea change. And yet the secret lies not in where you live, leaving the rat race for the apparent simplicity for the country or the coast. The secret lies in where your heart is. What is the direction of your life? Jesus says, strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things you worry about, all the concerns of your heart will be given to you. Bonhoeffer puts it this way, if we follow Jesus and look only to his righteousness, we're in his hands and we're under the protection of his heavenly father. If you seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, then that's all you need to worry about. And we are released from the spiral of worry that comes from trusting in our earthly treasure. So hoard for heaven, serve one master, and stop worrying. What a difference a community of such people could make in our anxious world. Our relationship to, to money is one of the areas in which followers of Christ could make a real difference. I think often we think of our difference in other terms, our difference from the world in other terms. And we're very worried about that difference at times. And yet it is here that we could make a transformative, even disruptive difference to the world around us. Being transformed by the grace of God, if we really believed it, could lead to it. Could we, in that, we could be agents of a changed society, a changed community, a changed world. Greed is a pervasive and destructive spiritual force in our world. It's a poison, infecting, corrupting pretty much everything. If you want to understand the nature of human evil, the principles always follow the money. And as we've seen, this attachment to money comes from anxiety and produces yet more anxiety. But in Jesus, we've got a security and a significance that goes far deeper than anything these things can offer us. So how can we better live as though we believe it? How can we show it? Well, I want to challenge you to consider your lifestyle choices this morning. And I want to challenge you to consider what changes you can make in the areas that you have power. Changes you can make, influence you can have where you have influence. Firstly, lifestyle choices. How does the gospel, how does this message we've heard this morning shape your lifestyle choices? If I'm honest, I think contemporary Christians, including myself, aren't as single-minded as we should be on this. Does where you choose to live, for example, or where you choose to send your kids or your grandkids to school, and what debt you take on, does, does this enable you to have a generous heart? Does this reflect our gospel-shaped, our, our gospel orientation, our seeking first the kingdom? Do the choices you make in these areas make you feel poor even when you're rich? Do they make it hard for you to be single-hearted? Now, for example, there may be all sorts of reasons to choose private schooling. 
But private schools have become the must-have middle-class accessory in Sydney, a sign of status. And the burden of the fees on a normal family income is immense. Now, don't get me wrong. I love what these schools offer. I'm on the board of one. I went to one. I taught at two. I've been a parent at two. I'm in it up to my neck, right? (laughs) But the fees leave us with little room to be generous. They bind up most household income. They force parents to work long hours. Both parents have to work, leaving no time for volunteering or family togetherness. Is this a good choice? And then there's housing. Could you live for half the cost in housing somewhere else and still earn the same? There are good reasons to live here in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Very good reasons. Family, community, proximity to work, and so on. You may already own the home in which you live or may have inherited it. But the cost of property is exorbitant in our city. The cost of property often places an unreasonable burden on a family or on a personal budget. It puts pressure on us. It makes us feel very, very anxious. Is it worth it? Is it helping us to seek God's kingdom? And then what about the debts we take on as a matter of habit? It's been normalised amongst us here in Australia that we will live with debt. In fact, the average Australian household is a quarter of a million dollars in debt, according to 2018 statistics, which makes us the fourth in the world for household debt. That's the average There'll be some people not in debt at all. Now, there's nothing wrong with going into debt per se. But when you are in debt, how do you feel? Do you feel like you have a blessing, like you have a lot? You're much less likely to be generous when you're in debt. You carry with you the burden of that debt and a mentality not of plenty but of scarcity. You don't feel worth wealthy or blessed. It makes us harder. It makes it harder for us to seek God's kingdom. So those are some lifestyle changes and some lifestyle choices, and I'm sure there are more that we could consider if we are to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. But what about the things we have power to change? Our different relationship with money ought to show itself in these other worlds, in these other ways, especially in the things we have power to change in our world, even when it might cost us. We don't get in the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me be plain, we don't get a political program and we don't get an economic philosophy. What we get is the complete reorientation of ourselves to the kingdom of God. We are to preference what God preferences. So when you vote, do you think of the bottom of your own bottom line, your own advantage? Do you calculate how it will benefit you, how your vote will benefit you? Will you do you vote for the interests of the common good, for the needy and for the poor? If you're a member of a political party, do you contribute, do you advocate for more compassionate and less inequitable policies? Do you vote for or against greed, wherever you sit on the political spectrum? Wouldn't it be remarkable if Australians couldn't 
simply be bought off at the ballot box by a bit more cash. If you're on the board of a company or a shareholder, is profit your sole motive and justification? Or do you use your influence for the common good? I remember hearing a, a Christian who was a very, a, a very a, a executive officer of a well-known company saying that his entire motivation was to provide a benefit for the shareholders. And so that was his justification for some policies in his company, some strategies, which I think were deeply damaging to the community. Uh, for him, I felt that profit outweighed any other consideration. Let that not be so, where we have a choice to make it so. Is your share portfolio profitable or is it also ethical? Do you pay your cleaner or your nanny or your gardener the legal wages or do you underpay them? I'm sorry to say that in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, the underpaying of such workers is endemic. It's, it's everywhere that we underpay people, the people who are working for us. We don't pay them the legal wages. Now, these are possibly awkward questions. I hope they are. You'll have to answer them for yourself. There's no tidy answer. Uh, it's up to each of us to answer those questions. But if the good news of Jesus Christ is true, then our job as his disciples is to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness above all and to ask such questions as we seek to hoard for heaven, to have only God as our master and to be much less anxious and in those things to be emblems of Jesus Christ himself, to seek his kingdom and to leave all the rest to our generous heavenly father from whom all blessings flow and from whom we have grace upon grace. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.